Well, good morning. I'm glad you all are here today on this beautiful, sunshiny Sunday morning. Um, <clears throat> uh, nice and nice and happy. Trying to be happy, exciting here this morning as we finish up this series, the Seven Churches of Revelation. And uh, good news, Harold will be back next Sunday. Uh, my name's Jason. I've been filling in for him. Uh, he's been at Hagen's wedding this week. And again, some big news, like we mentioned, Josiah coming. I do want to thank Logan for uh, stepping up during this time and helping us out as well. It's been a great thing, and we're excited uh, uh, to see what else the Lord's going to do through us. And I'm excited to see what he's going to do through this last letter to this last church this morning. Uh, You see, we're finishing up this series, and we've kind of been up and down, good churches, bad churches, happy, maybe sad, Uh, and then we get to the last letter, and it ends as probably the most shocking letter of all. And so this morning, I wanted to kind of start off shocking, and I couldn't think about how to do that, so I decided to, to look up some shocking stats for you. So this is some statistics about churches, specifically in our country, in our area, for us to think about while we talk about this shocking church today. So here they go. The first one is Toledo, right here by us. Did you know it ranks 30th in the nation among churchless cities? Over 40% of the people in our area call themselves unchurched, don't belong to a church. That's not saying a good church or a church that preaches the gospel, but no church at all. And of the people that are churchless in our country, three in 10 of the unchurched say that somebody shared the gospel with them. That means 70% of people who don't go to church in our country has never had a Christian share the gospel with them. To me, that was kind of shocking to hear that many people in our country have not heard somebody share the gospel with them. You know, these stats may be super shocking to you. Maybe they're not really shocking to you. Uh, But I wanted to think about kind of what's going on in churches in our area and in our country as we think about this church. Because today we see the scariest letter to the church of Laodicea. Um, And this church isn't just losing their first love of Christ, or they're not just a dead church, as if that's not bad enough. This church is described as being unsaved, and it literally makes Jesus sick. Did you get that? This church isn't just bad or not doing great. They don't even have a relationship with Jesus at all, and it literally makes Jesus sick. So what's going on in the city? What on earth is happening? How does this apply to us or all things we'll look at as we get into this today? But some of the background on the city, because this is really important today, because it really helps us understand what's going on in this church and their spiritual life. Uh, You'll see where Laodicea is here. It's the last church on this mail route here of these seven churches we've been looking at. And their name means rule of the people. And that's really interesting because this church, you'll see um, as we get into it, it designates a mob rule or a a democratic church in which everything is swayed and decided by popular opinion in the church. Whatever the people want, they do. Notice, though, it's all about the people, the people, the people. Hence, it's a self-righteous church and self-sufficient church. You see, it's contrasted between a church that is ruled or led by the Lord this church is on their own. They're, they're not allowing the Holy Spirit to work and lead them. And Paul warns about this to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2, or I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, the Bible says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, 
but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away from their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. That is, they were going to want to hear what they wanted to hear, and this church in Laodicea was no different. They looked for what made them happy and what they wanted to hear, but not what Christ wanted. This church was founded by a man named Antiochus II, a king. He named it after his wife. I think that's really nice. He named a city after her. And then he later divorced her and she tried to poison him, but that not quite as nice. Um, But you see, Laodicea was a major banking city. Uh, Finance was one of their their big things they did. They were rich. Uh, Wealth, money was moving in and out of the city. They also had a large export of wool. Um, They were one of the pioneers at this time of mass-producing clothing. So they were clothing people, but we'll see later on in Revelation, they couldn't spiritually clothe themselves. They also had a large uh, uh, medical center and, and uh, a kind of medical college there at the time that was on the cutting edge for the time. And one of their big things they did there was they made an eye ointment and an ear ointment. And again, it's interesting because Jesus will contrast their spiritual blindness with the fact that they had the wealth, they had the money, they had the knowledge of how to make eye ointment to physically heal themselves, but they couldn't spiritually. This church was lacking Christ. And as we get into this letter today, I want you to to see how bad this church is and how dangerous it can be when we put aside what the Bible says and put aside who Jesus says he is and try to make it about what we want rather than who Jesus actually says he is. So first off, Revelation chapter 3 verse 14, we see who Jesus is. Like the other letters, he describes himself. The Bible says to the angel or the pastor of the church in Laodicea, write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. So Jesus this morning describes himself to this church. Uh, He's having the apostle John pen these words in the letter, but here's how he describes himself. He describes himself as the amen. That is certainty and reliability. It gives the sense of someone who is capable and can be relied on, which is interesting because this church was relying on themselves and not on Jesus. But Jesus was describing himself as one who could be relied on. We also see him as the faithful and true witness. Christ is pointing out his accuracy and his truth, saying all these things that I'm about to say are true. They're accurate. In the word for faith here, it can be used either actively or passively when it talks about people, right? Because we can actively have faith or we can have had faith in the past and not really have it anymore. But when that word is used for Jesus, for God, it can only be used actively because God is faithful and he can't be not faithful. He can't stop being faithful for this church. So again, to a church that doesn't have a relationship with him, he describes himself as being faithful. And then finally, he describes himself as the beginning of the creation of God. Not that he was the first created, but that he was the author of creation. He was there creating alongside of God. This goes back to John 1.1 when Jesus says, I am God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Jesus says, I was creating with God. I am God. I'm in authority over creation. So why was it so important for John to establish who Jesus is, the deity of Christ to this church? 
And he did this with all the churches, but with Laodicea specifically, this was so important because of what was going on nearby them. The city of Colossae, which we see the book of Colossians written to, um, was only about 10 miles away from Laodicea. And they were struggling with essentially uh, the deity of Christ, making Christ what they wanted him to be and not what he said he was. They were basically lowering him down to being a created being or to being somewhat like an angel, not being God, their savior. And this had no doubt infiltrated Laodicea. In Colossians 4.16, the Bible says, when this letter is read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans. So here is Jesus, the offended Lord. He's offended by their view of him. That's a false view of who God is. And historically speaking, that's what makes a church a Laodicean church. If you look at churches who don't know Jesus, who, who aren't like him, it's that they've changed their view of who God is. Who God is, And if you have a wrong view of Christ, it has devastating spiritual side effects. You see, this church here was missing out on why the Bible, why doctrine, why what they believed was so important. And that's why we talk about it here, because What's important is what Jesus says, what God says about himself and his word, not our preferences of how we want God to be. That's, that's why that phrase, uh, when people say, well, my God would never do that, can be so harmful because it's not our place to choose who God is and what he is, but it's God's place to tell us who he is and how he operates. So you see, for this church, it was so important for them to know who Jesus was because they didn't know who he was. So then Jesus says, all right, here's who I am. Now let me tell you what your problems are. Here's his problems with the church, and there are a lot. Here's what he says, verse 15. I know your deeds. I know what you're doing, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Jesus here says, first off, their first problem, they are lukewarm, or essentially they've compromised with culture. Christ knows their works, just like he said to the other churches. He knows what they're doing or really lack thereof. And in essence, he says they're lukewarm, they're room temperature, they're not hot or cold. And if we look at the context behind this, he's alluding to the water supply in Laodicea. And you look at history, you look at where Laodicea is, they don't have their own water supply. It's really important for a civilization, a culture to have access to water, and they did not. They had one river that flowed through there, and history says it was pretty polluted, and it dried up every summer, so they'd lose water. So what they had to do was they had to build aqueducts and pipe water in from other cities. We've got a, a picture of the ruins of one here in a second, and you'll see what they look like. But the problem was they were piping these water in through these aqueducts from one city that was five miles away where they had hot springs. Hot water was good. They believed this was mineral rich. They believed it would heal them and bring healing properties, but it had to go through a clay pipe five miles away. And by the time it got there, it laid sediment down in the pipes. It laid calcium carbonate inside of the, the pipes, which is still um, in several of them. And by the time it got there through, well, we see what's left of them there. By the time it got to the city, it was room temperature, lukewarm, 
filled with sediment and basically made them sick. It was not good water. So their next thought was, let's find a cold water source because cold water is refreshing. So they found springs and rivers near uh, Colossae and they piped it in, but that was over 10 miles away and flowing through a clay pipe 10 miles away. It gets warm, filled with sediment, gross. By the time it got to them, it's room temperature and warm and the same as the hot water. So hot water, refreshing, healing, cold water, refreshing, but neither of them are doing what they're supposed to do by the time they get there, and it's literally making people sick. Basically, their water supply was good for nothing. It was basically Flint, Michigan water. You heard about all that a while ago. That's what this city's dealing with. They don't have access to good, clean, quality water, and so it's making people sick. And so Jesus here isn't talking about their water, but their spiritual condition. He says, you, like your water's making you sick, your spiritual life is making me sick. That is a bold statement. Their spiritual state was as good as lukewarm, gross water. The church had no shining light in the community. Basically, this church was compromising with their culture. Think about the other churches we talked about. They had that synagogue of Satan in the, in the cities. The Jewish people in the synagogues that were uh, fighting back against them, harassing them, because remember, the Jewish people didn't believe Jesus was Messiah, so they were trying to stop these true churches and giving them problems. But you don't see that here. You don't see that even mentioned in this letter because it's not a problem, because the Jewish people don't believe the church is an enemy because the church also doesn't believe in Jesus, apparently. You see this church not having any mention of persecution from Rome, from the Jewish people, from the trade guilds, any of those, those outside sources that we saw bringing persecution and problem and trying to get the church to um, compromise. We don't see that happening at all in Laodicea because they didn't view the church as their enemy. They viewed the church as just one of them. There was no difference in how they were living. And, you know, this city, it wasn't that they didn't have a large Jewish population or a synagogue or they didn't have Romans there alongside of them. They did. This had one of the largest Jewish populations outside of Israel at the time. This speaks volumes about the church that culture views them as just part of them. So what does that look like for us? Where do we see compromise and culture happening, and these things aren't popular or fun to talk about, but we see things that are clearly written in God's word, things that Jesus tells us about how he wants us to live, and churches compromising on them because it doesn't feel happy or it doesn't feel the way they want to be able to live. One such issue is you've got uh, LGBT issues, right? You've got God saying to live life one way, and the world saying, well, we're going to do it this way. And then you've got churches that start to say, well, it's not a big deal. They'll affirm them. They'll decide to be on their side of them. And then pastors and priests that are engaging in these issues. You've got issues like abortion where the Bible speaks clearly on, on the sanctity of life. And there was a, a, a win for that back last summer. But then this year on the ballot in Ohio is a measure to change Ohio's constitution to make uh, among just abortion a bunch of other evils legal constitutionally in the state of Ohio. You've got uh, this first issue in August that kind of deals with this issue, but then in November, this issue coming up. And there's plenty of churches that say, well, no, that's okay. People have their own choice when God says differently. You've got relationship issues, marriage, divorce. The Bible tells us we need to be married, to live with someone of the opposite gender, 
tells us we're supposed to have one spouse, tells us that we need to live relationships God's way, but yet we don't want to. Why do I bring these issues up? Not because they're fun or exciting, but because God does. And it's where the, the, the culture today tries to invade the church and get them to compromise. And when we don't have a correct view of Christ and what he says, we fall to it just like this church in Laodicea did, because Laodicea didn't care about compromising to what the Bible said was sin, because they didn't really care about who God was. They didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't have a relationship with him, and so they definitely didn't care about what he said to do. And you see, I'm going to say something that's a little tough and a little crazy here, but if we don't care about what Jesus says, about who he is and how we should live life, we should probably evaluate if we really have a relationship with him. I'm not saying if you sin or mess up, you're not saved, because that's not the case, because we all sin and mess up. That's what the Bible tells us. But what I'm saying is if we just completely don't care about who God is, about what he says, we should probably verify that we truly know who Jesus is and have a relationship with him. Because that was this church here. And today, just like back then, compromise has always been a chief tool of Satan. Romans 12, 2, Paul tells us to not be conformed to the world, but to renew our minds to serve God uh, so that we can prove what God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. And you see, any time that we have a preoccupation that we're focused more on what's here in this life versus uh, over what's in the next life, eternity, that's what we're doing. We're placing and conforming ourselves to this world. Believers aren't supposed to be of the world, but we're in the world. We're here. We're not supposed to be of the world, though, because of the relationship we have with Jesus. So what is Jesus' response to this church? They're lukewarm. They, they don't have a relationship with Jesus. They're, they're living this way. Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out or vomit you out. It goes back to that water. That water literally made people sick. Historians, people will all say their water in Laodicea was making people vomit and be sick. And Jesus is saying, your spiritual condition is doing the same to me. You see, God was angry with churches that compromised. He was disappointed with Ephesus that left their first love. He was, uh, he was upset with dying churches like Sardis. But here, this church literally made him sick. And you see, some people look at this passage uh, allegorical, and they try to see, you know, the hot and cold, and that's how we're supposed to serve God. Hot means on fire, cold means not serving him. But here the point is that these people truly didn't know Christ. This church didn't know who he was, and they were having issues with that because Jesus said, not only are you just not loving me, not only are you just a dead church, but you don't really have a relationship with me. Jesus says, you're not reliant on me. Verse 17, the church, part of their problem stemmed from their own self-sufficiency. They were saying, I am rich. I have everything I need. They were, again, a large banking city. They had money. They, they had large exports of, of, of wool and clothes. They were taking care of their own needs. Um, history even tells us that when a large earthquake hit the area, Rome offered help to other cities, but Laodicea didn't get it because they didn't need help. They were able to fix everything on their own. They had more money than Rome did. They were good. They were self-sufficient. And that self-sufficiency bled over to their spiritual life as well. Rather than saying, I need 
Christ. I need a relationship with him. They said, no, we're good. We got it. We'll get to heaven on our own. We've got it figured out. And you see, pride and self-sufficiency had crept into culture, and that culture crept into their church. Said, no, we're good. We handled everything else physically. We'll handle spiritually too. We've got it. And this church was stuck in this cycle of taking care of their own needs and their own problems and not relying on God at all. And Jesus says, because of it, essentially, verse 18, they are unsaved. He calls them wretched and miserable. That is, they were uh, afflicted by sin and they didn't realize it. They thought they were good. They thought they had everything taken care of because physically they did. They had all their needs met by themselves. They had all the money they could want, but they didn't have their spiritual condition fixed. Spiritually, they were poor. They were spiritually poor. They were blind, the Bible describes them. They couldn't see, which is kind of funny that Jesus says you're spiritually blind when they had a hospital in the town and a teaching school that made eye ointment to heal eye problems, but yet they couldn't fix their own spiritual blindness. If you had eyesight problems, they'll fix it, but they couldn't fix their own spiritual blindness. Jesus says they were naked. Their shame was evident. They were unclothed spiritually, which again is funny because they literally were mass-producing wool clothes for people back then, but they couldn't clothe themselves spiritually. You see, once a church denies scripture and denies Jesus, it's a Laodicean church. The Bible calls this church wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, and there's nothing you can do with those words to look at that and go, oh yeah, they definitely have a relationship with Jesus. They're essentially a non-Christian church, which is a sickening condition because they think they have everything figured out. They think they're doing it right, when in reality, they're doing everything completely wrong. And we'll see that more as we continue on here because they think they're saved, they think they're spiritual, when in reality, they don't even have a relationship with Jesus. My question for us is, is that any of us here? Do you know for sure you have a relationship with Jesus? So what then should the response be to this message? The good news is Jesus doesn't leave that message right there. He doesn't say, all right, you're out of luck. You don't know me. No, no, he, he gives them a way out. Look at what the Bible says. Verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those who I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Jesus says, I advise you to, first off, rely on Christ. I advise you to buy from me. Jesus says, you need to rely on me. They're used to purchasing things. They're used to taking care of their own needs. They did whatever they needed to do to supply for themselves. But Jesus says, you need to rely on me. Not that their money or any of that was good with him because the Bible tells us salvation is free. They don't need to pay for it. There's nothing they can do to earn it. But Jesus says, you need to come to me for it. You can't get it on your own. You can't get it in the markets. You can't get it with your money. You need to focus on me. He mentions gold and white garments and eye salve, and these were all remedies for those previous spiritual conditions we saw, right? For their nakedness, for their eyesight, for their, their lack of wealth. Jesus says, you need to come to me. If you want wealth, health, clothes, 
Jesus is offering them, and not physically. He's not saying you're going to be rich physically or have all this, but what he's saying is you're going to be rich spiritually. You come to him and have salvation, you're rich spiritually. You come to him, he'll heal your spiritual blindness. You come to him, he'll clothe you spiritually. He'll give you everything you need. And you see, salvation is that gold that makes us spiritually rich in faith. It's the white robe that covers our sinful nakedness and our righteousness and God's righteousness through Christ that's put on us. Jesus said, if you do that, if you rely on me, you need to acknowledge your own issues. Those whom I love, I reprove or discipline. And you know, this is, looks like sometimes a bad thing, discipline is, but here, Jesus could have written this letter. He could have said, hey, you're really bad. You don't have a relationship with me. But rather, he chooses to discipline them or correct them and point out their sinful state. 2 Timothy 2.25 says, With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus corrects them because he loves them. And this is a divine kind of affection, but there's not a relationship with it. They haven't placed their faith and trust in him yet, but God wants them to repent and turn to him and have a relationship with them because they love him. Their response should be to be zealous and repent. That is to uh, earnestly desire and pursue and strive for God. They couldn't just be a church goer, but they needed to be God chasers. They need to chase after God with zeal and repent. That's turning away from their sin and turning to the Lord. Here, one author says this, repentance means you realize that you're a guilty, vile sinner in the presence of God, that you deserve the wrath and punishment of God, and that you are hell-bound. It means that you begin to realize that this thing called sin is in you, and that you long to get rid of it, and that you turn your back on it in every shape and form. You renounce the world, whatever the cost, the world in its mind and outlook, as well as its practice, and you deny yourself, take up the cross, and go after Christ. The whole world may call you a fool or say that you have religious mania. You may suffer financially, but it makes no difference. That is repentance. Repentance is only going to come if you realize you're not rich and you're not wealthy and you're in need of nothing. You realize that. Jesus says, rely on him. And then he says, open the door. He says, I stand at the door and knock. And this is interesting because he's presently standing there knocking, asking to be let inside of his own church. Jesus is outside of his own church. The other churches, some of them had problems, but he never described himself as being locked out of his own church. These people were doing church completely without the reason for the church, the guy who created the church, who established it. Jesus is knocking, desiring to be let back in. Jesus calls out to them and says, he who hears my voice, he's even calling out to them with his own voice. He's trying to get them to understand that he's not even a part of their church. And Jesus says, if you hear my voice, if you answer the door, I will come into him. If the church responds, Jesus says, if anybody in that church responds, Jesus says, I will come into him. Because the act of saving faith, it rejects works and it recognizes their own spiritual bankruptcy, their own issues. And it says, you know what? I have nothing, but I need Jesus. That's what salvation is. It's saying, I have nothing on my own, but I need him. And Jesus then says, I will come in and dine with them. It's really interesting. This church that was, was 
making him sick, so hypocritical, he says, I'll dine with them. That gives the idea of fellowship. Typically, you invite people over to your house for a meal. You typically at least kind of like them normally, and you typically have fellowship and conversation with them, right? You guys don't invite people over to your house and then sit and stare at them and say nothing the whole time you're having dinner, right? I hope not. If, if you do, you don't do that. That'd be really, really awkward. Jesus is saying, no, I want to invite them in. I'm going to come in. I'm going to have dinner with them. I'm going to have a meal. We're going to have fellowship. We're going to have a relationship. So Jesus says, I want to have a relationship with them. Jesus then gives them a promise for those that fix the problem. Look at the last two verses and, and he ends the passage here. He says, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Jesus says, if you respond to him, He'll give you salvation. That's he who overcomes. It's the guy that gets saved. First John 5, 5 says, Who is he that overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The Bible tells us in order to have salvation, you need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for you. And then the Bible says to call upon him to save you. That can be something as simple as saying, Lord, I know that you're God. I know you died to save me. Please save me. He who overcomes is the person who puts their faith and trust in Jesus. And then Jesus offers this church a great reward. He says, you can sit on my throne with me. The same way Jesus is, is ruling next to the Father one day in, in, in the millennium, uh, as we looked at with other churches, the Bible says we'll rule and reign with Christ if we have that relationship with him. Jesus is offering this church that was hypocritical, that was so bad, that was making him sick, the opportunity to rule and reign with him. And sometimes we look at that and go, wow, that's kind of crazy, but it's not because before we got saved, we were right there where this church at Laodicea is, right? We were enemies of God, separated from him, sinful. And Jesus offers this to anyone who will accept him. So then he ends the passage the same way the other letters have ended in verse 22 and says, if you can hear, let, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. After reading the seven letters to these seven churches, we cannot escape the fact that compromise of God's word is a problem to uh, really the root of all problems to these churches. Let each of us need to look forward and say, you know what, I'm going to hear what's been said, I'm going to apply it to my life, and I'm going to make sure these aren't issues in my life. Listen, we've heard a lot today about this unsaved, sad church. Really, it's the most shocking letter because this church is so, so bad that Jesus isn't even a part of it. And I mentioned some shocking statistics about churches in our area. And, and uh, you know, we've asked you to do a performance review of your own life in our church. I've done it. I've, I've found things to say, I need to work on this or get better here. Or maybe our church does. And, and we look at all of this. And why do we do that? Well, because we don't want to get here. You know, I want to end this on a positive note, though, because the good news is today, I don't think we're Laodicea, right? I think there's Truly people here who have accepted Christ, Christ is a part of our church, and that's exciting. Are we as faithful as Philadelphia? I hope so. If Jesus sent a letter to us, I would hope it would say we were like that church in Philadelphia. But you know what? We need to make sure that is always our goal. And today I want to share a video with you that I think really 
kind of pushes this point home as we, we close today. Uh, this is a video of um, one of our members here. They typically come to the 9 a.m. service. If you haven't met him yet, his name is Jerry Ash and his wife, Jean. They come here. And Jerry just shares his testimony about his kind of church experience throughout his life. So we'll go ahead and we'll watch that video now. My name is Jerry Ash, and I attend Grace Point in Northwood. I was born in uh, Willard, Ohio, and my folks moved to Burgoon, and so I attended, my home church was Burgoon, it was an EUB church when, when I grew up, and I accepted Christ when I was nine or ten years old. My wife, Jean, and I got married and went back over to Burgoon. I think in 1967 they become United Methodist, and things changed quite a bit in uh, the pastors we got. Uh, none of them really pushed the gospel to lead people to Jesus. It bothered me because I had experienced that when I was a kid. And so Gene and I decided we needed to leave. So we went over to Salem and Bethel, another Methodist church, and they had a Wesleyan pastor, and it was growing. I mean, it was clearful. Then we started to go down, and they gave us another pastor, and then they moved him. And we never recouped from that. We just kept going down. And we opted to close because there's only about 10 families there. Wasn't enough to be in ministry. We closed the church. We went to uh, Grace Church in Fremont. And that was in July of 2019. And then when Tiffin opened up, we went to Tiffin and spent three years in Tiffin. I have never experienced anything like that in my life. People were coming. They were being saved, and it, this was a highlight of my life. It was, it was amazing. We moved up to Otterbein in Pimmerville because my wife has got Alzheimer's. We found out that they had church at Northwood, which is closer than Tiffin or Fremont was to us. So we come here, and uh, Harold's a great pastor. I love to see people come to Christ. We need to hear the gospel preached in the churches and outside the churches. If, if a, a young person would come to Christ in their youth like I did and depend on the Holy Spirit to guide and direct them. They'll live a content life, a life full of blessings with challenges and problems and things, but you'll have a guidance and you have the love of Christ that will take you through it. Again, I love that story. I was thankful Jerry let us play that and share that and got to record that. If you haven't got to meet him yet, they've been coming to Northwood here for uh, about a month and a half or so. They come to the 9 a.m., so come to that service, meet them. They're really cool. But, you know, when Lauren and I first came here as well about a year ago, when we got to talk to people and see everything, one of the things that made us most excited to be here at Grace Point was the people that were talking about all the people who had trusted in Christ— in the last year when they were there and all the baptisms that were happening and how the Lord was working and there was spiritual growth going on. And to see that excitement about God working through the church was something we wanted to be a part of. And it was awesome. But you see, that's what I want our church to be like, to continue to be like, to be a faithful church that's making an impact on the world around them, that's sharing the gospel, that's doing all of these things. Because you see, Ephesus was doing good things, but they lost their love for Christ. Sardis was dead. There was still some good, faithful Christians there, but the church was dead overall. Laodicea wasn't even saved. And 
I don't think it took any of these churches that long to get to this point, because if you look at it, at one point they were probably all doing something good. And down the line, they slowly and slowly and slowly got farther and farther away from what they should be doing. So today, as we go out here, I didn't want to do takeaways. I wanted to do something different. So you should have or may have got a card on your way in. It says the Grace Point seven-day challenge. I've got, instead of takeaways, challenges today. And I want to challenge all of us to take the step to be faithful this week specifically, but all weeks going forward from here so we can continue to be the faithful church we're supposed to do. So here's what the challenge is. First off, read one letter to one church a day. We've gone through all seven, but it's been seven weeks since we started the first one, six weeks. So review them. Read one a day this week till next Sunday and just review through them. Then read through the book of Jude twice this week. That's towards the back, Jude. Uh, It's a short book. Shouldn't be too hard for you to get through, but we're starting that series on Jude next week. It's not about the Beatles. It's actually about Jude, the book of the Bible. So that way you'll come ready to go about what Harold's going to preach on in Jude next week. Third challenge, pray every day at least once. And, And you'll say, okay, maybe most of you are doing that, but pray specifically for yourself, your family, and your church family to be a faithful church like God's called us to be over these last seven weeks. And then the last one, and probably the hardest one, but share something with two people. And you'll say, something, that's not hard. No, no, share something spiritual with at least two people in your life. And I would challenge you, let one be a Christian, somebody that you can encourage. You know, you're praying for your church family, so maybe find someone who you didn't see here today or who's been sick or down lately and reach out, let them know you're praying for them or share something you've read in your devotionals and be an encouragement to another Christian. And then that second person reach out to someone who maybe doesn't know Jesus, maybe doesn't go to church because we saw there's a lot of them in the area. Let them know that you prayed for them or that we're starting a new series on Jude next week and they should come check it out with you. Maybe offer to buy them lunch after. That'd be a great way to do it too. But share something with two people. Imagine if we take this seriously this week, each and every one of us, and we walk out of here and we read our Bible, we pray, and we share the gospel with somebody this week. We invite every one of us, someone to church. Imagine how the Lord could continue to use the gospel in our area where 40% or more of people don't go to church. As you go out, you can sign your name on that. If you want to commit to it, you can drop it in a bucket if you want to commit and take that challenge. But I would challenge all of us to try our hardest to be the faithful church that God has called us to be. At this time, let's go ahead and stand and we'll pray and be dismissed. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for all that you've done for us. Lord, I just thank you for bringing us here this morning to let us hear this challenge from your word. Help it to be a challenge to each and every one of us. Just bring people in our life that we can share something spiritually with them, invite them to come hear the gospel. Lord, help us to read your Bible, take your word seriously, and prayer seriously this week as well. In your name, amen. Have a good day. We'll see you next week.